Hi, this week's episode is a very special one to me. I've been a fan of this week's guests for almost 20 years. Bob Nastanovich has had a pretty amazing and eclectic career, and he isn't afraid to share his experiences. Bob grew up and went to college in Virginia, where he became good friends and eventual roommates with Stephen Malcolmus of Pavement and David Berman of the Silver Jews. The three of them went on to live together in Hoboken, New Jersey, working at the Whitney Museum and driving buses. Eventually messing around and playing music as the Silver Jews went from an idle hobby to an actual music career. Bob joined Pavement as an additional percussionist, eventually became a core member of the band throughout their highly influential run in the 90s. After their breakup, Bob dedicated himself to one of his true passions, horse racing. He still to this day breeds horses and works at a horse track. In addition to that, he has a, a great podcast called the Three Songs Podcast, where he and his co-host Mike Hogan expose one another to artists that they like that the other might not be familiar with. Their categorical and deep music knowledge is truly impressive. Bob also somehow finds the time to run his own independent label, Broker's Tip Records, where he gives all the profits back to the bands that he features. The only prerequisite is that he enjoys their music. The label releases are as eclectic and varied as one might expect from having listened to his podcast. Bob was extremely engaging and shared so many amazing stories with us over the course of our conversation. He had lots of interesting thoughts and fantastic perspective when it came to this time at Pavement in the Silver Jews. You will definitely want to listen to this episode and make sure you stay for the killer Billy Corgan story. Thanks again, Bob, for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. I look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon in the future. There's a fresh bush light waiting for you next time you're in Chicago. Uh, once again, please feel free to give us a, a follow on Twitter or Instagram at No Wristbands or follow us on our website at www.norisbands.com. We're here with Bob Nastanovich of Pavement and Silver Jews and Three Songs and... I'm going to get your yeah. record label wrong, but I have it in the top of my Broker's head. Tip Records. Yeah. Broker's Tip Broker's Records. Broker's Tip Records. Uh, yeah, all you same. need to know about Broker's Tip is it's a nonprofit. We put out limited edition vinyl records of artists that are, for some reason, unrecognized. And just to give them an opportunity to have their music on vinyl, um, it's totally nonprofit. So as soon as I'm paid back from selling enough records, then they get all the profits. So I have a couple of questions about that. Well, let's jump off there. Uh, usually I like to go chronologically, but we'll go backwards this time. Uh, so what? how do you find your bands? Like, I, I know I read your website. I listened to a lot of those artists on there, and they're very disparate. But how did you, how do people approach you? Do you approach musicians to be on it? How does that work? I'm mean, going to have to go like artist to artist. Um, in the case of like a, one great band that I put out of seven inches, Piranorama from Richmond, where I grew up. And um, um, Chrissy Lozano, who's the singer and bass player, I've seen her former band play a few times, and I just happened to be in a bar in Richmond. And she handed me her new cassette, and I kind of listened to it all summer. And then I got in touch with her. And I said, Do you want this on vinyl? And then, like, um Lucy Arnell, um, who's from New York City, lives in LA. She sent me her self-released record and I thought it was really cool. And I was like, I'll put out a seven inch. And then you got people like Martin Dosh, who's obviously a very well established artist who plays drums for Andrew Bird, but he's like to me, he's way far more than that. He's been around for 15 or 20 years and he makes just fantastic music. He's a one man band, he's just a machine. 
And he got in touch with me because he needed somebody to put out his, his record. And then in the case of like my two bands from Baltimore, Quattrocena and Post Pink, um, they got in touch with me and said, hey, we do a record. So it's just like, so yeah, it's like interesting, like you get as many submissions to put out records as you actually sell records, um, <laughs> which is kind of cool in a way. Um, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but like I run this label from this cottage and um, the budget's limited. I don't make any money off of any of it. And it's just, um, to me, it's just like um, rather simple in that it's an opportunity to have artists that are completely unknown. And there's millions of those, mm -hmm. okay? But that you like that touch a nerve with you or that you think is really, really cool. And for whatever reason you dig what they do, I've got two bands from Des Moines, which is a is an unrecognized music scene for a lot of reasons. Opportunities are limited, da da da. Odd pets and crooked tourists from Des Moines. And they're friends of mine. Um, so it's just like there is no rules. It's just like if the timing's right, we can afford to do it. I mean, I've got um, a, a woman on the label named Holiday Sidewinder, who's like, um, she's like an Australian pop star, but like she just kind of needed somebody to put out her seven inch. And I kind of, I've never met her. I've just met her. And same with like um, C Night. That's a really cool band from San Francisco. Um, I did this thing right before the pandemic hit high gear. I was doing a, they were showing the slow century documentary at some movie theater in San Francisco. And like, I had an, a red eye flight. Like I went into this bar and this really nice guy came up to me and introduced me to Linda from C night. And she hooked me up with her music. I listened to it. And I said, Hey, do you want to do a seven? So it's all like just completely impromptu. Um, there are no rules. Um, I mean, if you really want to sort of know like more about the label, oh, it's brokerstiprecords.com. Um, and the, you know, the story of the label, um, we're like zeros. Like, um, we're, um, we don't really exist. Um, we just provide an opportunity for bands, to put records out on vinyl that that's all. I love that. And it, and a huge part of it is that I've got a friend who I also have never met um, in Madison, Wisconsin, who works for um, Super Duper Records. It's S-O-O-P-E-R-D-O-O-P-E-R -O -O -E -E records.net. A guy named Chris Langkamp. And like anybody that you know that's trying to put out a limited edition of vinyl um, at an affordable price, that's your guy. So without Chris, um, I wouldn't be able to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just kind of, it's, it's fun. Like, um, it's just fun. It's sort of like, you know, just like everybody else. Like, I think, you know, in the 90s or whenever I was, maybe even when before then, like when I was a kid, like everybody dreams of having a record label. And um, so... I'm just sort of doing that on my own term terms with like zero expectations. So yeah, that's, that's all. I, you know, I, I like every record I put out. So, and I really, and it's really cool that other people do too, you know? 
that 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 dream of of having a record label, Bob. Um, that leads me to the question: like, if there was somebody that you felt like, oh, this would be my ultimate. If I could put out a seven inch, or if I could put out a vinyl record for this artist, I mean, who would that be? You know, interestingly, I thought about that today. Um, there's a really interesting hip hop artist from St. Croix called Bush T. Um, two words, B-U-S-H-T-E-A. And um, as far as I know, she has like four or five singles. And, you know, it's music, it's, it's summertime music, hot weather music from the Virgin Islands. She has, I've seen one video and she's got a bunch of stuff on the streaming things. And, um, and she, you know, so yeah, I would like to put out a Bush T7 inch, but I'm sure that like, She's probably being hounded by far bigger things, uh, mm-hmm. but she's relatively unknown. Like, um, so yeah, like not a week goes by. That's the great thing about this day and age of music. Like not a week goes by without something interesting, new or old hitting your ears. I mean, the access is completely different. You don't have to um, save your $40 and go buy two or three records in a record store, like mm-hmm. when I was a kid or even through, through the nineties. Um, sure. So, I mean, you know, however people feel about music streaming, like, um, and I understand like all the dissing and how it rips off bands and stuff like that. But it, like, to me, it's like, um, all about like, you know, you pay your whatever a month and it's like unlimited free discovery. So I would actually say that it's triggered, more purchases of vinyls that I otherwise never would have heard. Um, I think that's sort of like an underrated aspect of the way people listen to music today. It's like, if you're like a vinyl guy, like you guys probably are, (coughs) Um, you know, unless you've got like a really cool record store, which, you know, I mean, have you ever been the kind of person that goes into a listening station at a record store and, um, you know how I many listens to like eleven records and decides to buy three? Uh, I have been that person at Reckless Records in Chicago. Yeah, see, like, um, we don't have. I mean, even when I was in New York at Pure Plotters, like, or even Plan Nine in Richmond, like, um, maybe I've always been just kind of too self conscious to use the listening station. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, like, I think that um, to me, the biggest benefit of paying one hundred twenty dollars a year for streaming services is just complete access of music from the 20th and 21st century yeah it's like you can be anonymous and like those record stores these the record store employees were like the gatekeepers right and you were like oh let me tell you what i'm interested in and and hopefully you get a pass to to get into their inner circle and they'll introduce you to stuff that actually matters yeah but they'll never turn you on anything really um unless they're trying to sell their own records i mean (laughs) Um, have you ever worked in a record store? I have not, unfortunately. No. Yeah, I did. Like when I was in college for two or three years, I worked in the, um, in plan nine is a kind of a famous central Virginia record store. And then like for in Richmond and like for a while they tried to branch out. So I worked in the Charlottesville one for two or three years. And like, I'd been sort of like harshly treated by in my own mind because like shopping for records in public is a very, 
especially when you're a young kid, is a very self-conscious experience. I totally like you're agree. actually You choose your records, you're actually like kind of worried about what you're going to put on the counter. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. so are, like, are they going to judge records. you? I'm surrounded by records right now. I guarantee that I've bought records that I actually end up like not liking just to like, for the sake of having the record store clerk think that I was cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's just like, you know, you don't have to worry about that when you're, I mean, one great pleasure I get too, is I make playlists for like a, my friend owns a really cool, um, restaurant in new orleans called galaxy taco and then another friend of mine dave um runs a really cool bar here in des moines called the bartender's handshake where my wife works and i make playlists for them so um it, would you say that's kind of how uh your podcast started uh you put stuff on there i feel like i have a pretty good depth of mer- music knowledge but i feel like i'm in the kiddie pool and you're in the deep end and there's any time I, I listen to your your podcast, the three songs. Thanks for listening, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. It's it's so good. And I was listening to it today, and I was like, man, I, I don't know any of these bands. And I always feel like like you said, it's a little self conscious about it, right? But then I'm I'm there in anonymity in my room, then I can go bring it to other people. But would you say well, that's, that's kind of how very that kind of you? Um, the basic premise of the podcast was Mike Hogan, who I worked with in horse racing a little bit. Um, we both worked for the daily racing forum at the same time. And he was a, kind of a big deal there. And I was just like a field employee and, um, horse racing sort of interesting because like, no, like less than 1% of horse races ever even heard of pavement. So there are very few people that are even, <laughs> um, so they're not your bread and butter is what you're saying. So like he moved on, like, you know, like, um, he actually designs very important software for the racing forum and like, you know, he's a few years younger than me. And then we, you know, he kind of reached out to me um, and said, like, um, do you want to do a podcast? And like, he kind of came up with all the ideas. It's all him. And so the idea, the basic premise, which is really simple, is that we're not going to be judgmental. We're just going to each pick three songs by three different bands for each episode and play the song. And just like when you guys get together and like you play like, three records for each other, whether you both heard it or not mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just like what people do communally when they listen to music. And so you can imagine that the first 50 or 60 episodes were a real breeze because I think everybody has 150 bands that they love or at least now. And then like now we're up to like, I think we just did episode 166. So then once you get past like three or four hundred bands, then it's like kind of uncharted territory. So the best thing about the podcast and the exploration and the variety is it's sort of like in a good way um, forced me to listen to music, um, which comes and goes. Um, I'm 53 years old. Like, you know, there's, Music's interesting. Like sometimes you want to hear it all the time. Sometimes you don't, you know, and I commute. So like, and then, you know, I mean, I'll go like 60, 90 days without listening to music on a regular basis. You know, like I'm not like the, the, but the important part of the show, three songs pod is at three songs pod on Twitter and 
soundcloud.com slash three songs pod, the numeral three, um, is I think we've got like a few hundred listeners, regular listeners around the world. Um, and it's cool, but it's totally similar to the label. Like it's all, <laughs> there's no, nobody's ever reached out to us. Nobody's really sort of interested from a business perspective. Um, it's just me and Mike. Um, we're supposed to do one tonight, but it's, like we'll push it back to tomorrow. We try to do one a week. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's just fun. It's a challenge for me. He's really sharp. Um, you know, and it's just interesting to hear, you know, keep in mind, we'd done like, we had done like about a hundred episodes before I even met him personally. And, um, so it's just, it's been a great experience. He's a great friend. What I really like about it is like the, the turns you on to stuff you've never heard before, which, you know, we, we did a podcast recently with, uh, the head of chirp radio in Chicago, which is Chicago's, uh, primary and probably only, uh, community run radio station. So we were talking about the power of, of people to turn you on to things you had never heard of before. And what I really like about your podcast, not to toot your horn too much is, is like the defense or the explanation of what you like about something. It's never like, Oh yeah, that was cool. It always goes more in depth than that. And I, it, it gives me some insight into what you like, what you don't like. And then like, just gives me an understanding of who that band is. And I get really excited about that and I go hunt those people down. Well, that's very kind again. Like, and I do like, um, spend, some time taking notes because I don't want to sound like a complete idiot. Um, (laughs) And there's just some things that, you know, like it's like, um, you know, keep in mind, there's like a master list of all the songs we played. Like all the time I'll be like, Oh, I want to play this band and be like, Bob, you played it. Like, you know, Mike's really sharp. He's like, you've already played them in episode 88. I'm like, ah, you know, (laughs) we even talked about um, recently um, doing like a, a set of 10 episodes where we reprise artists that we've already played. Um, but you know, who knows? I mean, you know, it's just completely, it's just wonderful that people listen to it to me. Like, um, it's not, you know, we are like the farthest thing from anything successful in music podcasting. It's just like, um, you know, I mean, like some people do it, like thousands of people do that shit for a living. I mean, yeah. like, mm-hmm. um, I think we're on the same wavelength as you that we're interested in, in turning people on to things that they don't know about and, and sharing our, right. our love, our passion. Yeah, check out Bush tea. That's weird. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely I'm going sure. to not to preview what's going. I was <laughs> I'll act surprised when I hear one sixty seven. No, one of the greatest, yeah. one no, of kids the greatest... send me things too. Like, you know, kids like it's really lovely. Like, you know, um, people send me their music and they like, in the hopes of having it come out on broker's tip, we just have no budget or very limited budget. And I'll say it's really cool. Like I can't put it out. Cause we're backed up with releases and stuff like that, which is the God's honest truth. And, um, but I'll play it on the podcast. So like, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, if I really dig it, then I'll play it on the podcast. So it's just weird. Like I'm not, the way I feel about music sort of interesting, like in terms of like something that, that should never exist is like when I was young, um, we used to judge people by their musical taste. 
and that's something that should really sort of end like in your early to mid twenties. I mean, like, cause you're going to cut yourself off, especially if you like a lot of really sort of weird music, which in some cases is unlistenable. And then in my case, I've actually participated in bands that played music that was unlistenable. <laughs> um, then you can't expect, um, you just, I mean, like, the woman who sold t-shirts on the reunion tour for pavement in 2010, Kelly Shaw is a good friend of mine in Des Moines. Um, like her, like her music taste is un ungodly poor. I mean, like her, <laughs> but I mean, like who, like, who am I to judge? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like the, like she's a really really cool woman. She want you know she's just great, but she you know she like loves the shit out of Phil Collins, <laughs> which doesn't make her and a, and a number of other artists, which like it would pain all three of us to listen to. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't make her not cool. Like who are we to judge? I mean, like my years, they barely work. Um, I'm just happy to be able to like today I was like driving back and forth to work and, and listening to like some Korean psychedelic music compilation I discovered in the seventies. Um, I've had a great year with music just and not really, I guess the best record I've heard this year that was made like in the last six months was um, by a band from Europe called Raymore, R-E-Y-M-O-U-R. The album's called um, Labiosa. And it just like, to me, kicks ass from start to finish in the same way that like, hearing like, you know, Stereolab for the first time or something. Mm -hmm. Um and then, like, there's just, like, it's just, what I'm saying, go back, going back to my original comment on the subject, it's, like, musicians can sit back, and they can complain about all the pennies they make from streaming services. And, but at the end of the day, I would say that even in the case of Pavement, um, which is an old-school crowd of record buyers, that we are responsible streaming services are responsible for more sales it's just like pennies are like it's just access yeah <clears throat> you know yeah. like you could work with somebody like who their favorite artists are like big and rich or some you know <laughs> ungodly horrible shit <laughs> and you could play them um and that's again, that's not for me to judge. Um, range life and otherwise, like you know, in a different day and age, I'd have to bring in like some sort of means to listen to range life. They'll be like, oh, you know, like this is intriguing, you know, like then they hear the rest of it and they hear, like, you know, whatever. Um, do you, uh, do you still have beef with Billy Corgan? He has beef with you guys, I think. I don't think it's the other way around, though. I never had any beef with Billy Corgan. Um, Billy Corgan, I met him once in my life in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, the Frogs were opening for him. 
And um, they, Dennis, who's rest in peace, um, contacted me at about nine or 10 in the morning and they were staying in a really posh hotel and they sold out Freedom Hall in Louisville. And he contacted me and he said, we have a major emergency on the tour. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. You're, on, you're in town opening for Smashing Pumpkins. He said, we have a major emergency, like Billy's eight track broke. And I guess that's how he fiddle it, like writes his music on tour. He needs a portable eight track. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're the only person I could think of in Louisville. Um, do you know where to get a, a portable Tascam eight track machine? I said, yeah. He said, well, you can help us out. And I said, well, yeah, it's like 20 miles north of here in Cementville, Indiana. And he said, and I said, well, I'll just come down and pick you up. So I drove down there in my 1984 Dodge Lancer. (laughs) And um, I was thinking it was just going to be me and Dennis. And um, so we drove up to Cementville, which was an amazing place. It was like a proper, like, um, I hate personally hate music stores where you buy i'm the kind of person that writes down everything i needs and, and then hands it to the guy when i walk in just because i can't stand the toot of somebody like looking at me like are you really a musician like that's my crap <laughs> and so so i i pick up dennis and and uh billy climbs in the back of my car and so we drive to cementville and um, he doesn't say a word. He's got headphones on and <laughs> I drive, you know, 25 minutes up to Indiana where I bought my Moog prodigy a few years before for a hundred dollars. And I bought a Nord lead right when they first came out for market price. It was actually an investment. It's actually been used by the city of Hull in England for a lot of records. So it's, and I've, it's now at Steve West house. So whatever. Um, so I walk in the store and I hand the guy, I need a Tascam 8-track recording machine. And the guy, I don't know what it was. It was about two ninety nine or some shit. And so immediately, like, the guy runs back and hands, hands us one. So the whole transaction, so exactly what he needed took about 12 minutes, okay? <laughs> and we're back in the car. We drive back to this fancy hotel they were staying in downtown Louisville called the Sealbox. And I, it was great. To, always great to see Dennis. I tour managed him. He's, I knew him quite well. It's always a pleasure to see him and Jimmy as well. And so I dropped them off at the seal box, and they didn't say a word to me. And so then Dennis calls me up an hour later, and he says, um, "I feel really bad that like you know you just did all that, and you're not going to get anything out of it." And I said, "That's cool, dude. No problem." Like they offer me whatever it's kind of an interesting experience um <laughs> you'd think that you would sort of like thank somebody who did you sort of an immense mm-hmm. favor you would think um, yes. but that's okay and it kind of lived up to like the my bo- preconceived notions of like his level of prickitude um, <laughs> that billy so, mystique, right i love that word so it was just crazy so like so he calls me and he's like well you know, i'm gonna make sure that you have if you want, I need you six tickets tonight show, six backstage passes, and you know, come if you want. You'll be on the will call. So, my girlfriend at the time, Erica Bricking, 
and one of her friends was a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, so she calls her up. And so we go over to Freedom Hall, so we got, so I go to the box office, and indeed there are six tickets and six backstage passes. I'm like, this is badass. And so I've only got, so I give one to Eric and one to her friend, and I've got one too. Hook myself up. I go out in the parking lot. I've got <laughs> sold out. I've got no, you three didn't. T- no, you didn't. Three, I've got three tickets. <laughs> I've got three backstage passes. I take the three tickets, and I sold the three tickets for two hundred forty bucks. I made two hundred. <laughs> so now I'm up. Now I'm up two forty cash. Yeah. <laughs> Trip paid for itself. I, yeah. I took the backstage <laughs> tenfold. So I took the backstage passes. I put them in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. I had mine. So I go backstage and um, before the concert started, so we're like an hour early. And I go back and like Dennis and Jimmy are they're putting on their costumes and stuff. And I go in there to get free beers. Um, Naturally. Yeah, free Heinekens. I think they had Heinekens like behind this curtain or something. So I walk in and um, Billy's sitting there and he's sitting on a couch and he's watching this lar- this pretty large TV screen of like a video that they're making in slow motion, making sure things right. And I walk in like, and I, he looks at me and he had no recollection that I was the guy that drove. Me. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, Hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm Bob. I drove you to Cementville, Indiana and back to the seal walk today. So you get that task MA track, like nice to meet you. Like I can have a couple of cold beers. I'm going to watch you play. And he just kind of looked at me like kind of stunned and like reaches and I reached my hand out and he gave me like the the biggest limp fish hand <laughs> and I was like, this guy is like really living up to my like wildest dreams. Like, I didn't even know that he he I mean he, I never really knew the answer. He could have been very well versed that I was one of the members of Pavement. Yeah. Um I would say Maybe I would say it's maybe a fifty chance, or I might have just been some nice guy from Louisville, like who gives a shit about <laughs> yeah. this guy? Because I look, I look very random. Um, and I think um, you got that rock star look down. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I'll dig around for the compliment in there. Um, oh, so I had like four Heinekens, and I watched their first two songs, and. It's a hard place to play. I mean, I'd seen ACDC there, and they kicked ass. But if you're on ACDC, you're going to suck. At least at Freedom Hall, a little. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I watched, like, two songs, and I've got, like, I've, it's like, I've got these three backstage passes. And I'm going to be here for, like, an hour and a half. So I walked around the concourse of Freedom Hall and went by the merch stand and stuff. So I'm not going to watch the fucking concert. So <laughs> I found the three most annoying like little <laughs> teenagers i could possibly find and said look hey Eve. hi I'm, I'm bob i work for smashing pumpkins oh, like no. we want you to meet billy because yeah. you're so decked out and like smashing pumpkin shit so i took these three kids back there and um they were amazed they got through all the security they had the backstage pass on total vip like get through everything it's hard in a basketball arena like yeah you know, and they're just like blown away they're like you know, <laughs> oh yeah one of the girls there was a it was a two girls and a guy one of them was like shaking and i walked them all the way up to their dressing room and they've got their backstage <laughs> pass on and i said there you go and like the band had just finished the concert just getting off the stage like 
So these three kids went in there just going like ape shit. <laughs> and then I just like saw Dennis to me and I said, you guys have a good night. And I walked out, found my girlfriend and her friend, got my car and drove home, said 240 bucks. Nah. And I dropped like three punishing <laughs> young fans off backstage. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, I don't really God. care. Like, um, yes. I don't really care. I you know I love Billy it. Corgan thinks of me. So. I love it. That's that DIY spirit that I that I I see a through line through your music with. So I respect the hell out of that. Was just a grandiose opportunity <laughs> at an arena rock show to like you they, know kind of like sort of return. I mean, if anybody does a favor for me, I really sort of feel the responsibility to sort of pay them back. Yes, and, and I'm talking about back. even like driving me like. <laughs> Or whatever, like something that takes up 30 seconds of their life. Um, But the request came through from a friend of mine, like, you know, kind of do what I would call kind of a major favor. Let me just take the opportunity to say thanks again for being on our podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. The the thing I'm pleasure. The thing I'm most excited about that story is we've got Billy lined up for the next one, so I can't wait to hear his rebuttal on this. So cool. Yeah. The last time I saw him, we played Sao Paulo. In 2010, and, you know, Sao Paulo is like a very late night town. And I had flown in from Des Moines via Detroit into Sao Paulo, and I was supposed to get there, like, the only time I've ever been to Brazil. I was supposed to get there, like, 12, 14, 16 hours before the concert. My flight was delayed in Detroit. It was winter, and our late fall. Um, by 11 hours. Um, the most amazing aspect of being delayed for 11 hours on this plane, three or four hours of which were spent on the tarmac, was that the flight from Detroit to Sao Paulo was about 300 people, and 100 of them were Americans, and 200, 200 of them were Brazilians. And the only people who seemed annoyed were the Americans. <laughs> the Brazilians were having a great time. They were like, and they managed to like, get off. I mean, like, so basically, when I did get in there, I got in, I flew in there, some representative from this festival who like grabs me and like literally if I get to this festival site, which is like an hour from the airport, an hour being like five miles in Sao Paulo. And um, I realized that it's about 70 minutes before we're supposed to play. And so I'd, I'd already made the set list on the plane because that was one of my jobs in pavement was to make set lists. And Smashing Bumpkins are playing after us. And <laughs> so the first thing I see when I walk into the dressing room is like Billy Corrigan with like headphones on and a hooded sweatshirt walk past <laughs> our dressing room looking really, really fucking annoyed that he had to play with pavement. And I obviously wasn't going to say anything to him, but like, you know, people like that, you know, like, being a successful person in music or in any aspect of entertainment um, is more so than athletics is just such an unusual and rare opportunity Mm -hmm. that I have a huge amount of trouble with anybody who's sour about it. Um, 
anybody that's had any success in the entertainment industry, whether it's hard earned or not hard earned, hard earned, um, should be grateful. Mm-hmm. So as simple as that may sound, that's the way I feel. And like enthusiasm is a huge part of that. I feel badly for anybody that doesn't have any enthusiasm. Uh, so like you're and it's gotta be a, a weird or unique feeling, feeling like your music is resonating with people. Uh, at what point I didn't write the music. So, um, yeah, but you were a participant in it. I was a participant. Yeah. Uh, Um, what was it like, or when was the first notion that you had like, okay, this is more than just my friend Steve asking me to come along and, and take this little like journey with him. When did it feel like, okay, this is going to be a gig for a while. 92, like after like, like the months that led up to the release of Santa Enchanted, and it was an early release on Matador. Um, it was like a really sort of um, like if you heard if you had heard a tape of Slain and Enchanted six, eight, ten months before it came out, and you were listening to it with, and I had nothing to do with the record. And the first pavement record that the first pavement recording session that I played on was Watery Domestic. Um, and I just played bit parts, you know, um, that was a very highly anticipated record in 91, 92. And so I would play it for people that I knew really well. And they were like, holy shit, dude, you guys are going to be like a really big deal. Um, and on our own, like on our own terms, like being yeah. a, a big deal meant like selling out lounge acts. Oh. Um, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so or playing in England, yeah, or Scotland. I mean, the concept of doing that was insane. I mean, so I was driving a bus in New York City and Malkmus was a security guard at the Whitney Art Museum. And we realized within a course of like 90 to 120 days that we're going to be able to quit our day jobs, be able to like at least tour like the United States and break even and then tour in the UK and Europe. Um, so, yeah, no, that was... It was crazy. I mean, this is a this is two years removed, two or three years from remo- removed from he and Scott and Gary making sleigh tracks and then demolition plot J seven and perfect sound forever. Mm-hmm. Um, all credits to Dan Koretsky for reaching out to Scott, yeah, from- um, to make sure that that all happened. Um, yes, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, like. I never, I mean, in 1990, I never, I was perfectly content to always be in the audience or on college radio. I never had any, in my wildest, I never, there wasn't even my wildest dreams. I was like, I'm way happier on this side of the stage in the crowd. I'm way happier listening to music um i never had any 
It was absurd. It's like, to put it like as simply as possible, like my parents, <clears throat> um, I contacted them several times and I was like, yeah, like, you know, pavement, like, you know, Steven and um, Scott, Gary, you don't know, we're going to go on tour. My, my, my parents couldn't even conceive of the idea. <laughs> I'd never played music before. Like, they knew that I was into buying records and I was a college radio DJ and all this sort of stuff. But like, you're not supposed to be in bands. <laughs> so how did that conversation go? Steven, you know, Malcolm, he was just, he's like, Hey, we need you. Gary's like, he needs somebody to keep him on track or is he yeah. just like, okay. Yeah. About a week before the, keep him on the first tour he ever did was in 1990 and it was a week long on the East coast. And then, um, I actually sort of convinced Stephen to hire Eibold, uh, Mark Eibold, our bass player, because he was one of the earliest pavement enthusiasts um, and just a great guy. I was in a band called Dust Devils. And um, so we got him to play bass. And so we did little tours in 1991. And um, so before we ever played a show in 1990, Malcolm's like had no clue how it was going to go. We had like maybe 10 or 12 songs to play. We were going to go to Mamaroneck, New York and Westchester County to Gary's house and practice. And like Malcolm said to me, he says, you might want to like get yourself a couple of drums just in <laughs> case we need somebody to keep time. So I actually bought the two drums from C West for $60. <laughs> a good investment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, and then, like, the great thing about those years, even in 92, um, was that um, if Gary was on, I didn't have to do a thing. <laughs> so I could just stand there and, like, drink beer. And then Malcolm, we were playing a lot of shows in a row. He was worried about, like, shredding his voice, you know, like, it, it'd be hard to, like, sing trigger cut after no life censure so like that's yeah. how like the screaming bit sounded up in my lap and then then of course after gary left the band in 93 um i had to sort of expand my role because we had a competent drummer who's my best friend since the ninth grade so um it was just all like it all you know it's just still to me unfathomable yeah i, I, I mean, most I, people who know me like the last thing that i ever think was that i was in a band what <laughs> I, what i love about it is that you were brought on as like hey we need you in case of emergency break glass bring bob out and then you were they liked it so much they you know they felt a connection with you obviously you know you felt that with steven from you know going to college and living together but then right. they're like okay hey now you're just in the band like to me, if it were me, somebody asked me to do that, I'd be like, cool. Like, I have a friend's band that I'll shoot photos for, but it never has morphed into me being an official member of the band, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, to me, I think really the only thing that I brought to the... There's a few things that I think I brought to the table in hindsight um, is that um, I was really good at teams. Yeah. I've been in a lot of teams. I was really good at bringing people together and um, you had a calming presence, not even calming, just like um, the excitement, like, you know, this like has to work. Like, and then musically, um, 
I feel like uh, not from a technical playing ability, but from a so much listening and so much seeing bands for a decade um, put me in sort of a judgmental situation in terms of, and also like um, being so much more familiar with being on in the audience and being on stage made me very more aware of the crowd than being on stage. Um, it's just sort of interesting, like the way like everything evolved. I mean, I remember the first tour we ever did of Europe and I thought that I thought like, you know, my role in the band was sort of evolving and like I was very self-conscious mm -hmm. and, um, and our sound man had been with us since 91, Remco Shout, and he's still our sound man. He's Dutch and he's very blunt. And he came up to me, <laughs> I'm in Belgium. And he said, he said, um, at the end of the, end of the European tour, the second leg of the San Enchanted tour, he's like, He's like, I really like you, but I see no reason for you to be in this band. You know? <laughs> well, and you, um, that actually really hurt my feelings. Yeah, I, bet. I just done like, you know, and because um, all he cared about was how the music sounded. Like, you know, you, I've never been a sound man, but like, it's, you know, it's moving faders and knobs and stuff. Like, so a lot of nights he wouldn't even use what I was doing at all unless he had to. Um, so it kind of challenged me and then like, thankfully within like a year, it was a challenge to me, which probably did by accident, but like within a year, like he was like, he's like, Oh no, you're a total necessity. <laughs> so, which uh, was a huge compliments from that guy. Or, so as you know, you're on this, this up and up, you're, are you feeling that wave? Like, Oh, we're going to Europe now. That's crazy. Oh, we get to make another record. That's nuts. Oh, you know, we're on I think it kind of felt really, really sort of like took me to another world. It was like we went to New Zealand and Australia and Japan in '93. Um, that was like wow. I mean, it was just all uh, people. You know, people often ask like, you know, shouldn't a payment have been more successful? Like, you know, payment was like groomed as the next Nirvana and like. You know, we could have been like a bigger deal than we were, and like da da da. da. And like to me, we're just like all the way through it, like even to the end of '99. Like we were just like this remarkably successful band who had the pleasure of working with like-minded people, um, whether it be Botch Billions, our booking agent since almost the very start, people like Dan Kay at Drag City, Gerard and Chris at Matador. Um, Lawrence at Domino. I mean, we're always like, we never have to deal with the sort of mythical world that you hear about um, that bands have to deal with, but like major label executives wanting to affect how they sound. And like, we're always working with people who had the same goals from our peer group in a lot of, a lot of cases with like similar tastes. So like the whole thing was just like very sort of comfortable and like, you know, people would always be like, they'd be like, aren't you guys disappoint, disappointed that you're not more successful? I was always amazed that we were as successful as we were. I mean, yeah. like, <clears throat> what in the hell were we doing playing on Lollapalooza in 1995 after Sinead O'Connor? Yeah, I mean, especially when... no, I, yeah, After Beck and Sinead O'Connor, I mean, like, come on. 
It was well, a bad decision by Lola Palooza. They overpaid <laughs> us. Botch will be the first to tell you. Like, I remember I was in North Carolina driving a, late at night in a minivan, and Botch was passed out in the back. He was sleeping. I don't think he was passed out. He's in the back of the van. He, of course, had he was managing Jesus Lizard, and he, you know, was the booking agent for both Pavement and the Jesus Lizard on the Lola Palooza tour. And I said, I'm talking to whoever's in the passenger seat, I'm saying, how the hell do we explain that like we're playing after Beck <laughs> and Sinead O'Connor quit the tour, then Elastica took her place. And Botch woke up from sleeping. He said, tell him you've got a really great agent. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the case, but that was 95. Like that was after Crooked Rain. I think people thought like after Crooked Rain came out, that we're going to be a big deal. Cause, but you know, come on. Yeah, real. I mean, <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, do you think that you guys went against the grain at all, or is it just like, we're just going to make what we like, and if people like it, cool. If not, then whatever. We have you know no skin in the game with this. That's just a question for Malkmus and Camberg because... Fair, fair. I think that in terms of Steven, like, he was just... Um, I mean, he, you know... He that would have been his control. I mean, like I was just kind of along for the ride, and like you know, I think one major difference um, between pavement and anything he's done subsequently, specifically the chicks, is that um, we would tell him when we didn't like something, <laughs> or in a lot of cases, in pavement's case, unlike the chicks, who are far better musicians than technically the most of the people in pavement um we needed things sort of simplified um so even though like so we kind of reined him in because we had to sort of dumb him down um in terms of like seven minute songs where he shows like he's he's good a guitar like player is right yeah. fucking cooter yeah, right. <laughs> yeah he's pretty you know what i mean it's just like the guy's a wizard you know like you got to kind of keep things like palpable and maybe that's the strength of pavement. Like one of the reasons why Malcolm has always been reluctant to revisit pavement and do reunion type stuff is that as a songwriter it reminds him of this like sort of juvenilia that from his twenties that he sort of put behind him and i think a big part of the reason why pavement ended is because he felt musically unchallenged mm -hmm. which is cool by me man <laughs> i can understand why he would get frustrated with us when we'd like finish a tour finish making a record and then we go home and like unlike him like we weren't playing sure. i mean bible was he's very diligent yeah. west always plays drum they're musicians so those guys played music and like but I wasn't keeping up. I was going to the racetrack. I mean, like, heck yeah, you were. I was buying slow horses, betting on horses, living across the street from Churchill Downs. Like, yeah. I was just like, let me know when you need me to go back out on tour. Like, <laughs> I was obviously like, I mean, I, I, in my own mind, I consider myself useless in the recording studio. But then I'll listen to pavement records. I'll be like, whoa, they actually used what I did because I had no idea. Like. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Did when you guys would go into the studio, would it be like? And I know you had Nels Klein from from Wilco and his own uh, as a immense, genius immense uh, back catalog yeah. on your podcast recently. But 
Dies amazing. Like he's one of the yeah, greatest you know rock musicians of all time. Unassailable. Yes. Just like Great guy. I mean, I've never. I mean, I've only met. I've met him since seen him in, since '97. But like. Tremendous personality. Have you had him on your show? Uh, no, not yet. Hopefully someday. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, but I was listening to, I, I'm a huge uh, Wilco fan in addition to uh, Pavement Stand, but uh, Jeff Tweedy will be like, yeah, you know, we go in the studio and we work around and we leave like a gap in there and we're like, oh, Nels will just fill that in with some weird Nels solo and like he'll own this part of it. When you guys would go in the studio, would it be like Steven or Scott Camberg being like, Okay, Bob. Here's your time. Like, fill in this space with whatever you want it to be, or is it like much no, more like structured? No, no. It would always be like kind of like things went fast, and this about pavement, not shoes. Um, uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about shoes in a second, but with pavement, the structure. There's the structure of the song. Um, generally speaking, they get the drums first, um, and then. And the bass, it was like a no, there wasn't because, like, Malcolm is the leader of the band. Um, no, it was nothing like that. It was, um, at least you got to keep in mind, too, that I was only a part really there for the bulk of the time for Wowie Zowie mm-hmm. and. Bright in the corners and Terror Twilight. So, um, and the other, and Kruger Rain took a hell of a long time to record. But I think Malcolm is just like an ace. I don't think that there would be anything like that. I think that Wilco was more of a <clears throat> traditional band. Pavement was more, at least the way the albums were constructed, was more of like a more projecty. Mm-hmm. I often sort of felt like when we finished a recording session or finished a tour, that was sort of like the end of an era. Okay. And that we'd almost come back the next time as a different band. I think that like Wilco and even the Jets, I think it's way more, way easier to make analogies between Wilco and the Jets than it would mm-hmm. be pavement or either band. Because I think pavement was just like, Malcolm would just like bring his cards to the table and we'd work it all out and we'd make it as as good as possible. Then Camberg would do the same thing with his percentage of the output. Mm-hmm. Um, and then touring was interesting because we were like, a, it would take us a while for us to hit our stride. I mean, like one, one of the really sort of interesting things about pavement was like, we were really bad live a lot of the time. <laughs> um, I thought the time I saw you sounded great. Yeah, it probably wasn't. It was probably after '93. Yeah, it was 2010. Yeah, we were fine then. Um, I mean, we could be really bad. I mean, we did. <laughs> but that's like the people. that's like the awesome thing about seeing live music. You know, have you read uh, Trouble Boys about the replacements? Have you read that book? I saw them play bad shows. Yeah, exactly. I never read it. No, I saw them a bunch. I saw them when I was 17. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they're and notorious I saw about for just ten like, times between seventeen age twenty four. And how many of those shows were they like on on? They're really good for about eight out of ten. <laughs> okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, they were cool. really um you know, keep in mind like Bob Simpson was only the ones that Bob Simpson was in, he was just like Gary, he was just free spirit. Completely out of his mind. <laughs> It was, enter- it was entertaining. Yes, sure. I mean, keep in mind, like, you know, Pavement played 
in Maxwell's like in Hoboken early on in 92 and they sent, it might've even been that kind of a famous New York times rock critic. If there is such a thing like John Perellis or something like that, some household name when it comes to like New York times rock critics to Maxwell's and Gary was just like Gary that day. Like he wanted to make money. He was 15 years older than us. Um, he was like, how the hell are we like doing all this touring and traveling all around, all around the world and not making money? It's a concept that he couldn't really understand. Like, how do you get your pictures in magazines on newspapers, enemy, melody maker, whatever mm-hmm. spin. And you're not rich. Cause like it just blew his mind. So like, he was very anxious to cash in his chips. He'd been in bands for 30 years. I'd been in bands for three and he supposedly had a meeting with somebody at some, I think it was capital. And he ended up like getting really drunk and passing out on the couch. Like, so we're, he's in New York and we're in, in Hoboken. And he didn't show up for sound check or anything like that. And then he gets, shows up and he's just like completely worthless. And, <laughs> So we played this show that was really sort of awkward and terrible, which is kind of embarrassing because like that was the town that we lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the headline, the article in the New York times is like this long. And the headline is my, my parents were there was making do without the drums. <laughs> <laughs> so it would have been the same thing with like Stinson era replacements. Right, sure. Like, yeah. Well, Bob, I got a question for you. I mean, you've yeah. you, you've kind of referenced it a bit um, in the discussion, but um, is there a certain amount of satisfaction regarding pavement uh, with you, Steve, and the rest of the band, with being, uh, you know, a, a, a cult hit, a critic's favorite, um, a, you know, a band that musicians love to reference, a band that you know newer musicians coming along are 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 listening to and and influencing their music without maybe having the ultimate commercial uh success as 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 you were talking about i can only speak for myself obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> right um malcolm's would answer this probably wildly differently <laughs> um it's just amazement you know you gotta keep in mind too that pavement from the start were extremely well treated by critics perhaps too much so because expectations were sort of high um we've just in the game keep in mind there was a backlash era that started with the wowie zowie um all the way through to the end and whatever but like in, in the end like pavement has always been it's, I don't know why, um, other than I, I mean, I love the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't really know how to compare. I mean, there's so many fantastic bands from the same genre, basically, in the 90s. Um, and why we struck a chord with like music critics and music influence. I mean, it would make sense to me why, like, you know, Sonic Youth did, or like mm-hmm. REM did, or like obviously Gang of Foreign Wire, you know, bands that were my heroes. Um, you know, Chris Knox, I mean, The Clean, The Chills, mm-hmm. I mean, like hundreds of like 
hundreds of great bands. I think maybe the only way I can sort of define it is that on pavement, um, people could sort of envision themselves up there. So I think we're, we're as responsible for, um, the advent of probably more bands that aren't good than are good. <laughs> so in payments case, like just, I'm, a, I, I was just always sort of amazed by how far we went. And like, then like, um, I mean, I've known a lot of people that a lot of the music made a big difference to them. And like, they love a lot of the songs. And of course I do because like, anytime you're in a band, you're going to love your own music. So any, any band I've been in or the, even the, the song about pavement and sword shoes, like, of course I like it, <laughs> but like, you know, it's, I can't explain what other people do, mm -hmm. uh, but no, we've been just like um, substantially well-treated um, all the way through. And a huge part of that was, is the, the fans. I mean, payment, like, um, sort of in the same way, um, as like, you know, way more successful things like fish or, or on the same level, like ween, um, Sebado. I mean, just mm -hmm. die hard guided by voices, mm -hmm. um, stereo yeah. lab, like, Sure. Obviously, Sonic Youth. So many bands, like, the following is so devoted. But um, Pavement only made five CDs rolling around for 10 years. Um, so. Is it, does it strike you as odd that people keep asking to come back? I, I mean, I know you delayed, you were going to do Primavera Sound last year, and, and then this year. And, and now last year, year and this year. And now we're it's supposed next to year. go next year. That seems pretty 50 50 to me. Um, I'm a little concerned because in 2010, it was a challenge, but we, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> um, you have to be sort of, um, you watch all these seven year old people, excuse me, um, play their music. Yeah. Well, so we ought to be able to pull it off, but like, <laughs> mm -hmm. Didn't you know, to me it's very exciting to today. play live so like I, it's a physical experience like I guess I guess I need to at some point when it seems like it's going to be a reality I need to sort of like try to get in shape <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Sonic Youth a couple times and one of my, my favorite anecdotes about uh, your time living in New York living with uh, David living with Steven uh, was that you got one of you guys got uh, Kim Gordon and uh Thurston Moore's phone number and you started calling them making sure they weren't home to start recording on their answering machine uh which one of you yeah, idea was that that'd be me <laughs> I should have known um the number was 212-219-2658 have you uh, called it recently is it still their number well I know they're not together anymore no no I checked many well no they're definitely not together um my my good friend Tanya Small, like a um, music record store clerk at Pier Platters, like 
shouldn't have given us that number, but she did. <laughs> uh, um, what was it like when you, you – I read somewhere that you did eventually tell them that you did that. Uh, yeah, that would have been in Amsterdam before we, we were touring um, Europe, opening for Sonic Youth. And Sebado played first and us and Sonic Youth for about – maybe about 10 shows in like in continental Europe and then – Sebado did their thing, and then we went to Italy and Spain for a couple of days, and we did the whole UK with Sonic Youth. So, yeah, we told them that. Um, as far as I know, they had no recollection. <laughs> I think I, I think that they probably um, were victimized by more people than just us in that <laughs> regard. Because you got to keep in mind, like it's like they had, it was a home home phone, old school, sure, right, tape machine type yeah. era. Like it was just a fun way to like heighten the excitement of like being gooned up and yeah. trying to make silver juice songs, you know? Yeah. Silver juice. That yeah. was, uh, that another, was a miracle. Yeah. I was, was I, a, my, a my question is like, how did it get to, it was this extreme, like lo-fi we're just, and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe this is not giving you guys enough credit, but it sounds like just three friends jamming, having fun playing around with each other. Well, that's a bad sentence. Yeah. Three playing friends music making music that only, they could like. <laughs> so then, how was it? How did uh, Drag City get involved? Uh, I I know at some point they they got looped in there, and then they started putting out everything. Silver Juice did. Yeah, no. Basically, I think at some point, I'm not really sure when it was. Berman met Koretsky. Might have been in Chicago. I mean, I'd have to ask Dan. I think he would probably recall. Um, and he they met at a pavement show. Um, somewhere, I believe. I've never actually asked Stan about this. Um, last time he got touched with me was about three months ago, and he said he had a horse betting question. <laughs> and I said, "I said, what do you need?" He because he, I figured I could answer it in three minutes. He actually called me on a Thursday, and I forgot about it. I called him back on a Saturday morning. He's like, "Oh my God, thank God you called back!" Because this woman that we mutually knew. Um, had given him a couple of hot tips on the racing going on at Belmont Park that day. And he was driving and he said, I need to get a bet down on, on these two horses. And I said, well, you know, Dan, I said, you can do that now. He's like, I don't have to go to an OTB. I was like, no, you can do that on the internet. <laughs> and um, I said, I'll be happy to place him for you. If you, if you win, I'll send you the profits. And if you lose, you send me, send me what you lost. And he said, well, the first one, there's a horse called Jackie's Warrior, and I want to I want to bet two hundred to win on him. And um, I said, "Well, Dan, you're already winner because they ran that race four minutes ago." And Jackie's <laughs> Warrior finished third. He came in third, so he's kind of feeling. He says, "He says to me, he said, well, then the other one is like in the eighth or ninth race, and it's a horse called Silver State." And I knew Ann. And she's good. She, you know, she, she's a very good horsewoman. And she'd given Dan this information. And I had to go to work, come back. So he said, I'll bet 200 to win on that. I said, I'm not really sure if you want to bet 200 to win on Silver State. For one thing, your first hot tip, who was a champion, like one of the best two-year-old colts in the country last year, finished third. And I said, why don't you bet 40 to win place and show? Because the horse is running against Nick Scoes, one of the best horses in the country. And and uh, he says, whatever. He says, 
I said, well, here's what I'll do. I'll bet 40 to win place and show on Sil Silver State. And if you win, I'll send you the profits. If you lose, you PayPal me 120. So, and to be honest with you, I went to work, came back, Belmont Stakes Day, turned the I was like, holy shit, Dan's race ought to be going off. I put his bed in immediately. <laughs> and, I, and I turned on the screen. I watched the race and Silver State wins. Okay. <laughs> and so, I you know I got a DVR or whatever, so I, I put it in reverse. So I so I taped the audio of the call, not the video, just the audio. And I said, why don't I text you? The, I said, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but I'm going to text you the audio of what happened, and and then we'll sort of take it from there. And so I play him the audio. And it's like a minute and a half long, and Silver State wins this race. So Dan ends up profiting three fifty, three hundred fifty bucks. So I send him, I PayPal him three hundred fifty dollars. He's like, "Holy shit!" He's like, "What?" And he's like, "He's amazed." Yeah, I've been on a horse <laughs> in twenty years. And I said, "He said, what's?" He said, "What's your cut for placing the best?" My cuts, nothing. I'm just happy that something cool finally happened in horse racing. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time between drinks, you know, and uh, except for this slug. So, so he said. I was back like 40 minutes later. He's like, can I at least get you like a couple, can I at least send you a couple drag city records? I said, I said, yeah, you can do that. So I spent like a minute thinking about it. I said, yeah, send me the new Azita and send me the new Bill, Ma Bill, Ma Bill McKay and Nathan Bowles. Solid choices and, right there. Yeah. Yeah. So I got like about a month later, I got, the, you know, two brilliant drag city records in the mail. Um, Dan met David at some point. David had saved, meticulously saved all of those recordings that we made. Um, and at some point, David realized as a poet and as a huge music enthusiast that, especially combined with the success of Pavement, was a way for him to get his words to an audience. And subsequently he met Dan and he sort of convinced Dan that um, he should give it a listen. And keep in mind, like it was during an unusual like pocket in of like a year and a year, year and a half in the music industry where like the more lo-fi you were, the better you were. Mm -hmm. So we had that covered. Mission accomplished. Yeah, and then David's lyrics are resounding. I mean, he's definitely one of the best lyricists of his generation, and one of the best poets and lyricists of his generation. So um, that's really sort of what what I've always picked been, up their their relationship. What I have always found really special was the fact that they had such an amazing relationship that. You know, he and correct me if I'm wrong. David was living above Drag City oh, yeah. uh, when he was making the Purple Mountains album. And well, no, the year before that, he lived in Day Bought Drag City, bought some house about an hour from Chicago oh, in, like, in the Bluffs. Yeah, yeah, like Miller Beach, not far from Gary, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, right. And David was living out there on the Drag City guest house for a year, and then Dan sort of felt like he needed to rein him in and had him in the building. Um, also during that several years Pearl Mountains was made, he was popping up all over the 
western part of the country, Canada, putting himself in like really sort of luxe Airbnbs and stuff. And like, you know, Dan picked up the tab for all that. I mean, Dan, like, this that's just starting the Purple Mountains era. Like, without Dan, like, I mean, he's definitely the second most important member of the Silver Jews, easily. I mean, or, I mean, or if anybody's going to make an argument about it, I'll be happy to like. He never played. He never played one second. Yeah. So mm-hmm. choose. Um, I mean, like, there's no way that, like, in my mind, and I know I've said this before in episode 103 songs pod that, like, whether it be actual air or portable February mm-hmm. or any of the Silver Juice records or Purple Mountains, that like, whether. When he was alive, or after he died, that anybody ever would have heard of David it wasn't for Dan. I mean, yeah, unquestionably, no question. So, do you think that that was just like this guy's an amazing talent? I I want to like you know foster this relationship so that he feels like he. I don't has think you ever think. I, I think that David was very convincing, and I think that Dan has very intriguing and unique music taste. I think he's put out a lot of really cool records mm-hmm. for 30 plus years now. Um, and this is of course the early days of drag city when like, you know, this is like Royal trucks pavement, like he was off to a good start. Um, yeah, very good taste. And, and everybody makes their mistake mistakes. The guys put out hundreds of records. I mean, like, who knows? I mean, like some of the best artists. I mean, like, t- like to me, like you know, probably my favorite current musical artist, like, is Haley Four from Circuit to You. I mean, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's absolutely lives in Chicago. She's yeah. brilliant. She's on Drag City. So, like, you turned me on to her on your podcast. Yeah, thanks. Um, then they're like, and I'm not going to get it. You know, one interesting thing about being in a band for years is like, whether you're on Matador, Drag City, like. You know, you get to know some of your label mates, like, or like you see bands that like you love, and like you just get this impression that they're like jackasses. So you kind of like man, it makes it hard to like sort of enjoy their music anymore. <laughs> so I've been through all that, um, and I guarantee that there's some people that were put off by Pavement and the Silver Jews after meeting myself or one of my bandmates. I mean, like, who knows? I mean, like, you know, when you're out there it's a, a different sort of thing, but no silver Jews, like, um, at the start was an interesting opportunity to like sort of bring like what to me were like very towering talents of Malcolm and Berman together. Um, and you know when I was 18 and a half 19 years old like those guys were you know two of my 10 best friends at University of Virginia I was like I could be wrong but this guy seems like one of the most talented guitar players and songwriters in the world this guy seems like you know the best poet of his generation and like um keep in mind I knew a lot more about music than poetry um (laughs) It was, you know, as lame an adjective as it is, it was rather serendipitous. Um, 
it was hard to bring those guys together. Um, they were always, especially in David's case, like very competitive. You can imagine like the egos involved. Um, yeah. But at the end, I think that, you know, the, the two of them, especially with Steven in a sort of a quite welcome secondary role, um, did some amazing work together. I mean, to me, like American Water is yeah. like an amazingly essential Unassailable. record. Unassailable. And that's after David had fired Stephen, of all people, myself and Steve West out of the band. I mean, um, so yeah, like the little bits and pieces that I contributed to Silver Jews, whether it be the early stuff or Arizona Record or Starlight Walker, and then, you know, the occasional one-off here and there, like, just you know, pleased to be a part of it. Um, I didn't, I didn't really pay attention to a lot of it. I still haven't like my wife. A lot of people I know are huge Silver Jews fans. Like I've heard more Silver Jews like in, um, in the last than I ever intended to. Like there's some albums that I probably never would have listened to if I hadn't married a woman that is a huge, you know, Silver Jews fan. Um, <laughs> Funny how so, that stuff works out. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just want to say again, uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on, on David. I know it's... Uh, no, no, it's not that hard at all, okay. really. Like People like... Uh, you know, um, it's interesting. Like I met David when I was like 18, 18 and a couple months, and he was six, seven months older than me. And... I got to know him. We became, we were very fast friends, just like me and Malcolm's very fast friends. Um, not hard when you're in Charlottesville, Virginia and like, you don't meet that many like-minded mm -hmm, people sure. and you're time. in like a lot of cases, some sort of preppy preppy fraternity. Hell, <laughs> I mean like the, the radio station there, WTJU provided like this, like, this close knit bond of like five or six dozen people extended, which included like Steve Keen, John Beers from Happy Flowers, James McNew, Rob Chamberlain played in Pavement, Jeff Honker, Rich Walker, Carl Young. And it was just an amazing time. But like without the radio station um, and college radio, I don't think we ever would have been as tight. And we were competitive about our radio shows. Ken Ganfield. There's so many people like David Wobelove. There's so many people I can name. Um, it was just, you know, David's time was always going to be finite. Um, and in simple terms, um, after his mother died, then I knew it wasn't going to last very long. So... Um, yeah, like as one of the, you know, most significant friends of my life, um, people that I loved and, and adored, like, do I miss him? Yes. I miss him for his, um, angle on things, his unique viewpoint, his incredibly powerful brain, his talent, his sense of humor, all of those things. Okay. But the fact that he lived for 50 plus years was like pretty remarkable if you knew him. 
So, uh, well, so I don't know. There's no like, um, and if I played a drop of a role in like keeping him going, I mean, the guy had a great full life, you know, mm-hmm. and he took his own life, you know, so, yeah. and he battled like extreme clinical depression for at least 40 years that he was on the planet. Mm-hmm. I can't relate to that. Right. You know, so it's, you know, it's amazing he lived as long as he did. It's amazing he accomplished as much as he did. And I'm proud of him for that. Well, Bob, one of the things that become clear in in this discussion is you have some sort of innate ability of attracting like really interesting creative people, and it must have something to do with your personality. So, you know, how does that happen? Unselfishness. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Uh, so, yeah. we like to hard work. Like you know, you gotta like. Be determined. Like, in order to, like, you know, you just get energy. I've got energy, and Mm -hmm. I'm just an unselfish person. Um, To a fault, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Uh, Make life easier for others, and, you know. Yeah. Um, So we like to wind down all of our podcasts by asking people questions about Chicago. So... Because we're yeah. from Chicago. Yeah, because we're from Chicago. We're, <laughs> we're here to support uh, and yeah. champion the, the local scene. So you telling us all those great stories about Drag City, uh, that's a point of pride. I'm going mm-hmm. to carry that one. Oh, Ryan Murphy, Dan Osborne, just, you know, fantastic, great staff. Uh, so when you think of Chicago and you think of Chicago music, uh, what do you think about? <laughs> it's a funny question because... Um, That band Ohm is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We saw them. Uh, they played with uh, Jeff Tweedy when we saw Jeff Tweedy. Like, yeah, I'd love to see them live. Um, from my experience, from Chicago's a place that's loaded with amazing venues. I mean, yes, yes, yes. That was in our next question. The venues are amazing. Um, you know, so for me, starting with Lounge Axe and then mm-hmm. obviously the Metro, um, Lounge Axe, which is long gone. Um, the Vic, um, there's even other weird places. Pritzker Pavilion was a little way too big for pavement. <laughs> Woo. You look great from the wall. Yeah. Way too big, way too big of a stage. Um, really hard to sound good there. Um, you know, the interest really, you know, I lived by, um, empty bottle for a while. I lived at, I, all total in my life. I've lived three years total in Chicago. Really? Mostly related to the horse racing industry, working at Arlington Park and Hawthorne, mm-hmm. done in Cicero slash Stickney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One time I was at um, driving to Midway Airport to pick up a friend, and there's a, one of those J&J fish places. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I pulled over. With my friend Pete Fugates, we're picking the horse trainer. We're picking somebody up at the airport, and we're in there waiting for our food. And there's this like weird procession, this weird Harley Davidson wedding that happens on Cicero Avenue, like okay. just in the middle, like five in the afternoon on a sure. Friday or something. Yeah, perfect time. 
whatever, like, so like a hundred Harleys, like a bride and a groom or something like that. Like we're kind of standing there looking out the window waiting for our fish, chicken and fries or whatever. And like, I kind of like watching it with this other dude who's also a customer waiting on his food. And I was like, how do I recognize this guy? Like I sort of recognize this guy. I'm thinking like from popular culture, like, or from like entertainment magazines or like, um, MTV or like, I didn't, you know, I didn't even know, like I sort of recognize this guy and you know, I've never really listened to his music, but like, so I get in the car and I drive back home um, to where I was staying and I had the internet then um, this would have been like 2003 or four. I've had to guess. And I was like, I think it's, I think that the guy I said, Petey, I said, I think the guy that was in the JJ fish was 50 cents. <laughs> and he's like, I thought he, I was like I just, I'm saying I've seen like two or three pictures of 50 Cent <laughs> but I don't know what it looks like but I'm pretty sure that was 50 Cent we talked to him like he was just like pretty cool or like making jokes and stuff like that about like you know this absurd redneck Harley biker you know sure. procession of like random idiocy on this you know south side of Chicago you know <laughs> It's like quite frankly disturbing the images. Like some of them, I can't get out of my head. Yes, <laughs> but I can still, you know. So like, I go home and I, I so I put on Google Images and like get like forty pictures of Fifty Cent up there, and I'm like, Pete's like, holy shit, that you know, I don't know who the hell you're talking about. This guy is really famous. I was like, <laughs> I was like that's him. I said, like, are you gonna tell me that's not him? And my um, ex-girlfriend Greta was a jockey. I was like, she listened to 50 Cent. She's like, we just saw Greta. We just saw Pete verify. We just saw 50 Cent at JJ and Fish <laughs> right on Cicero Avenue by the airport. Yeah. And then come to find out over the next three or four days that there's some famous, like incredible in that neighborhood. There's some sort of incredible, like kind of private top notch studio where they make a lot of like uh-huh. super cool hip hop records. Wow. So, like, which kind of validated the fact that it was 50 Cent. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, sure it was. That was sort of an amazing Chicago music experience for me. Um, the most amazing thing about Chicago, I mean, Corey from Touch and Go. Yes. Um, Sue Miller, mm-hmm. who, you know, ran Lounge Act. Yep. Um, obviously one of the greatest bands in the history of Yorkshire, Mekons relocated there. Uh-huh. The thing that really sort of blows my mind about Chicago in a lot of ways is that the incredibly high percentage of transplants, um, there aren't too many, just like a lot of places, but even going way back to the blues tradition, there aren't that many homegrown Chicago artists. Everybody's a transplant, which is amazing to see that large. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, so most people that you met are like amazing musicians that connect themselves with the Chicago scene. Like they're not actually from Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, Koretsky's from Chicago, but like, but that's like, yeah. you know, that old riddle. That's like, if you have an old boat and you replace a piece of that boat over time, when does it become not that old boat anymore? So like if you spend so much I understand time what you're saying there, but it's amazing to me like yeah. that quite arguably 
I don't know. It's just it just what blows my mind about Chicago. Chicago. Well, there there played there many times. Um, fantastic venues, great place to play. Um, you know, he you got to keep in mind that like. I pretty much hate all the teams, with the exception of the White Sox. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> there we go. Um, so that's a part of it. What is your favorite go-to cheap beer? So for me, it's it's PBR. Like a, a bottle of PBR will get me through anything. Hot or cold can or bottle, my man. <laughs> to be honest okay, with you. Okay, let's like go it. cold bottle. I mean, I do like them cold, you know. Um, you know what? I always like thought that um, Bush Light was an absurd beer, but it's just so cheap and like it does the trick. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I used to I used to drink a lot of Miller Light um, a while back, and I've noticed that gives me an unusually large headache. Hmm. Huh. Um. Beer just, you know, home drinking offers such value. <laughs> I mean, come on. Love After that. my own heart. Love that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate oh, my pleasure. Taking, yeah. taking yeah. the time. Uh, it's been a little bit longer than we were, were yeah. hoping for for you. But uh, God, sorry. Yeah, very I much appreciate it. about this and that, you know. We'd, Thanks uh, for listening. I really appreciate your kind words about the Three, three Songs podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like I yeah. said, every time I listen to it, I end up finding something I like. And yeah. Uh, episode 100, if you want to hear more about Silver Jews, uh, Bob did a really nice tribute to uh, David on that episode. and It was like 11 degrees outside. I'm not <laughs> kidding. And I had a heater on me the whole time. And Mike has a newborn baby. And he kept pausing it because it took like five hours to record. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's dedication. No, that's if I would have cried during that episode, they would have frozen on the side, the side of my face on <laughs> the way down, you know. Well, anyways, love you guys. I'll see yeah. you in Chicago. Thanks right. so much. Payment yeah. will be there. Like, um, we'll be there. Like, uh, at some fucking point, I think you know. If we'll see how the pandemic goes, guys. You know, like hell. So I mean, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Right now, we're supposed to play two shows for the third year in a row next yeah. year in Europe, and then can we? And get- the other thing you got to think about live music is things are so backlogged. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to get. It's hard to get gigs. Yeah. Uh, can we get no. six backstage passes and six <laughs> tickets? Yeah, get whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, yeah, cause it, yeah. I mean, make yourself 600 and send the biggest assholes you got in Chicago go. backstage. Yeah. I'll yes, deal yes. with it. <laughs> love awesome. you guys. Uh, love you too. Yeah. Thanks so yeah. much yeah, for your have time. Great. We'll yeah. talk. My pleasure. Right. Right. Take care of right. yourself. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bob. Be unselfish. Yep. <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks so much for listening today. We are no wristbands. We drink for free. Music, of course, has been provided by Merlin Wall. Please check them out on Spotify or on Bandcamp. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at no wristbands and check out our website at no wristbands.com. 